When theologians set out to describe the attributes of God, his nature, his basically most uh, obvious qualities, they use uh, four different words generally. First of all, they'll talk about him being omnipotent, which omnipotent basically means he's all-powerful. He is, as the Old Testament referred to him as the almighty God. In other words, there's nothing that's impossible to him. There's nothing he cannot do. There's no limitations that we can even imagine that he could be placed upon him. The secondly, we're talking about him being omnipresent. It's different from the idea of pantheism, which basically says God is, is in everything. God isn't in everything. He isn't in the pew. In fact, he isn't even in people who don't know him or don't want him to be in them. But he is a God who is everywhere at all times, that there's not a subjection to the vagaries or the passage of time. He is before time, he is after time, which we saw in his description of himself here in Revelation, that he was in the beginning and he will be at the end. He is always present. And the third thing we say about our God is that he is eternal, which means he doesn't have a beginning, he doesn't have an ending, that he is timeless, which also implies he's unchanging. The God of the Old Testament is not a different God than the God of the New Testament, nor is he like any other description that people might say. We tend to think even today, we find here theologically, well, that's the way God used to be, or we need to unhitch the gospel from the Old Testament and things of that nature, as if God has changed his mind. He doesn't think about things the same way he once did, almost like he doesn't want us to subscribe to what he said long ago. And yet part of the idea of God being eternal is that he is unchanging. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Um, and so that's why basically in Hebrews 13, 8, he's made that statement, that he is unchanging. And then lastly, we talk about him being omniscient. In other words, that means always knowing and all-knowing that he is the all-wise, the all-seeing, and the all-knowing God. These attributes are things that we conclude because it's what the Scripture says. It doesn't use those terms any more than it uses a word like rapture, but nonetheless, it does appear over and over again as descriptive of who God is. These are his definitive being, who he is, and how he behaves in relationship to his creation, including you and me as those who were be created by him. And this has somewhat of an important perspective in that when we talk about God being omniscient, it means he knows everything. There are no secrets. In fact, again, as I said, the scriptures reiterate this over and over again in both old and new. For example, in Psalm 33, David simply wrote, from heaven the Lord looks down and sees all. That might be a disquieting moment for you right now, but he doesn't just see the outward expressions and actions. In fact, David would go much deeper in Psalm 139 and say, you're familiar with all of my ways. There's nothing that I have done or will do that God is not already aware of it. It wasn't like Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and God said, I didn't see that coming. God had already made preparation. So later on in Revelations, we're even told that God crucified his son from before the foundations of the world. In other words, the plan of redemption was in place before it was even needed because God lives past, present, and future. So he knows everything about you and everything about me. 
that all of my ways in it. David asks, where can I flee from your presence? He goes on to say, I can go to the depths of hell and you'll be there waiting for me. It's an amazing and broad concept that really eclipses our human ability to grasp. And yet essentially is God saying that is the ultimate issue is that I am far and above and beyond anything that you can even completely comprehend. Jeremiah even wrote, he says, your eyes are open to all the ways of men. And as a consequence, we find that even Jesus kind of gave us a warning in light of this reality. In fact, three times we find that he says in Luke and in Matthew, there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed. Now the word disclosed here, phaneros in the, in the Greek, literally means to a light will be shined on it. Something may be hidden and suddenly there's a beam that illuminates it so that there is no shadow even available. Everything will be seen in its precision. That kind of concept becomes more real to me as I get older because I find sometimes that I have to take something outside on a day like today and hold it in the full sunlight so that I can read the fine print. And it, you know, it's scary when you are finally able to read it and says, if you hold this, you will die. So, you know, the ability to see the fine print of life is really pretty challenging, pretty disclosing. But he said again, he said, nothing concealed. There's nothing concealed that will not known, be known or brought out into the open, which tells me one day we will find Jimmy Hoffa. <laughs> Most of this crowd doesn't even know who Jimmy Hoffa is. Okay. <laughs> yes, I am that old. <laughs> But other New Testament writers said very similar things. Paul said to the Corinthians, he says, he will bring to life, fotizo literally means to illuminate what is hidden in the darkness and will expose, again, the word phaneros, he uses it again here, to shine a light upon. He will expose the motives of men's hearts. So it's not just God being able to examine the material, carbon-based world we live in, but God goes deep into the very inner soulish issues of our hearts that he knows things about us that we do not know about ourselves. Or at the very least, we don't want to admit to ourselves. In fact, the writer of Hebrews put it up, summed it up, summed it up pretty well when he said, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. There's the ouch in this whole thing, <laughs> to whom we must give account. This is so consistent with how Jesus reveals himself in the opening chapters of this book of Revelation when he says to the Ephesian Christians about himself that I am the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, which he told us are the churches. He says, I am right here now in the midst of you and me. He's present in this place at this time. He sees every one of us. He sees everything about every one of us. And that can be really disquieting and uncomforting, or it can also be something that is very comforting because when you've decided to say, God, you can have my life and it's in your hands, do with it as you will, the fact that I am so thoroughly known by God, once you have confessed yourself as a sinner and called upon his grace, is the most comforting thing in the world. You see, something about you that we often don't recognize, we all yearn to be fully known. We all yearn to be fully known. 
I remember one of the great fears when I first got married was that as my wife lived with me, she'd discover who I really was, not the guy I pretended to be. And that if she discovered who I really was, that she would no longer love me. And I would like to say that, you know, she worked on it for a while and we got through that. (laughs) But I think the most wonderful thing about being married to the same person for these many years is the fact that this person thoroughly knows you. There's nothing I do that surprises her. I still leave the same toilet seat up. I still don't close the cabinet doors. And I explained to her, this is the virtue of a man. And she still doesn't buy it. But there's something about knowing that through it all, though they know everything about you, they will continue to love you because they discovered long ago that the worth and the value of the relationship was more than those external things, more than the bad habits or the things that need to be altered. Someone once said that everybody gets married hoping for something different than they get. Every woman believes that she can change him, and every man hopes she doesn't try. But the simple reality is that we are these fallible beings, and when we find people who love us, and they fully know us, and yet they still fully love us, we feel that this is what we have been looking for our whole life. And I would suggest to you that the reason that emotion and dynamic is in your life is because that's how God created you. Because I I realize that there are limits to what my wife could ever put up with. And the same thing is true about every relationship we have. And yet God has no limitations. His love for us is unbounded and unlimited. Not that he will look past anything. Because he does not. But he sees the inherent, the intrinsic value that is you. The majo dei, that the image of God, that we are created in the image of God, is what causes God to see in us something of himself, something that is of intrinsic and inherent and unbelievable, inexpressible value, even in the most corrupt of humans and their behavior. That as we talked about last week, that God will love us, but he will hate the things that destroy us and bring death and the things in us that can bring destruction and death to others as well. But you see, it's this healing that comes in our life when we recognize that we are fully loved by God, that it brings an honesty as well as a humility, that when we are free to say, God, this is who I really am at my core. This is my basic struggle, my basic battle, my basic doubts, my basic unbeliefs. These are the things that flow in and out of my mind that I know are not pleasing in your sight. When I know that I can have that honest conversation before God, it does two things. One is it lifts from me the burden that guilt is producing, but it also brings a humility that comes with honesty. An honesty that produces humility. That we realize that we cannot live sinlessly, we cannot live perfectly, but we can live confessionally. And that confession is what brings with it a forgiveness that really the goal of every Christian should not be to be a great performer, but rather to be a great repenter. We live in a culture that 
says basically with the right technology, we can make anybody look like what they want to look like. We can, there are filters out there that make you and me look fabulous. And there are people who live their whole lives behind some kind of filtration system because they're terrified to come out from behind the barrier. And yet in that moment when we find ourselves transparently viewed by God and he sees everything about me, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and yet the fact of his love doesn't change or doesn't alter. There's no shadow or shifting, as the scripture says with him. There's no alteration, as Shakespeare put it, when alteration is seen. But he loves me. Now, as Max Lucado put it so cleverly one time, he says, God loves you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. Which is what every parent would say regarding a child. I love you the way you are, but when you're 18, if you're acting like this, you'll be incarcerated. You know, that savagery of a two-year-old has to be dealt with and addressed, or it will become the, the maniacal savagery of a psychopath at 25. And so it is, we know that God is at work in our life. But it is this life of transparent honesty and and the humility of confession that God was speaking to the Ephesians about. When he was basically saying to them, don't trust in your spiritual heritage. I mean, this list of pastors, of Paul, of Timothy, of the apostle John, as the leaders of this church, they could look at their heritage and say, we are the disciples of these great men of God. We have this religious legacy that we have gone out and planted churches throughout the entire area and region and beyond. We have people as far away as Laodicea. We have them as far as, 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 as Corinth. Even people from Rome who are the fruit of our missions and our work and our efforts. What a legacy. And when it came to doctrinal precision, they were the best. We might say along with the prophet Micah, they understood what God requires of you, which is to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. But something I've noticed about myself, and I suspect it's true of you too, that just because you know something is right, just and good, doesn't necessarily mean that you'll actually do it. And that's why, as we talked about last week, that being transparently honest with God really requires us, it puts the honest on us, if you will, to live authentically with other people and to display what he referred to as the first love, which we've explored in depth the last few weeks. But as we saw, it requires that we remember the height from which we've fallen. That, that means to recall the last time my walk with God was everything that it should be. If indeed, I would say, some of the caveat, if indeed you've ever really truly had a walk with God. I would say the unfortunate reality in a culture like ours is you can be Christianized, but not really be born again. Someone referred to it, I think Martin Luther King referred to it as a civilized form of Christianity, that I understand the civil aspects of a Christian that I should be kind and love people and keep the law and do these sorts of things. And you can know all those things and be a, what the Greeks called a soukakos man, a man of the soul, a good man. 
but you're not a pneumaticos man. You're not a man of the spirit. And there's a vast difference that if I have a choice between neighbors, I want a neighbor who is a good, moral, upright, standing person. I, I like the fact that my neighbors are nice people. But nice people don't make it to heaven. They have to be born again of the Holy Spirit. They have to have God living and resident in them. And that requires that they be people who live a repentant life. And repentance, I speak of, is not just an action that we engage in, but a lifestyle that we embrace. When William Cowper, the great 19th century hymn writer, summarized this idea of remembering from where we had fallen, he said, where is the blessedness I knew when I first saw the Lord? Where is the soul-refreshing view of Jesus and his word? So that when we remember the height from which we have fallen, it means we have known a spiritual intimacy with God that now we say somehow is missing and is not there and we miss it. One gentleman who was a, a close associate of Billy Graham in the early days of their ministry, he was very gifted. His name was Charles Templeton. He was a better preacher than Billy, more charismatic, had a greater future in the eyes of many people as far as an evangelist. But at some point, he met a woman and fell in love with her and then divorced his wife and ran off with her and pursued a life in publishing in Canada. In Toronto, he became an extremely successful, accomplished man, very wealthy, very respected, and one of the most earnest proponents of atheism, having completely rejected Christianity. And as I was reading the account, when Lee Trobel heard that he was dying, he went to Toronto to interview him, and he had this long-running discussion of this man who had become famous within publishing as a writer and an editor and many other things. And as they sat in his luxury apartment at the top of some high-rise condominium in the midst of the city, he started asking him questions. What do you think about Billy Graham? He said, Billy Graham is golden. He's the best man I've ever known in my life. Surprising comment from a man who was an atheist. And then he asked him another question. What about Jesus? And Strobel said, as tears began to streak down his face, he said, I miss him. The height from which he had fallen. Ironically, here he had risen to the height of all the career accomplishments you could want. He had thrown off the shackles of spiritual restrictions and chose to make his own path. And yet as he came to the last moments of his life in this world, the one thing he missed the most was what Cowper turned, called about the soul-refreshing view of Jesus. I miss him. Because when you miss him, you want to return to that place. That's called repentance. You want to do the things that you did at the first and I will be honest with you, as honest as I can be, that there are times when I look back on my 55 plus years of walking with Christ as a Christian that my fondest memories were those early years when it was all new discovery. 
where every moment was kind of a surprise, where every experience was this manifestation of a spiritual power in my life that I had never had before, certainly wasn't there before, and yet suddenly I saw God moving and working in ways. And it was a sheer simplicity. Not a job, not a position, no title. I was just this fuzzy-headed yahoo, looked like a Q-tip, walking around barefoot and bangles and, and walking up to people and saying, do you know Jesus? And then dealing with all sorts of interesting responses. <laughs> Some of them, I took their word at it, were life-threatening, right? And yet undaunted because it was the most important thing in my life. I miss that simplicity, especially when I deal with the complexities of something like a church this size. I miss that simplicity. When we talk about repentance, we often refer to it as an emotion or something that we feel. In fact, our own dictionary defines it to feel sincere regret and remorse about one's wrongdoing or sin. I feel really bad about what I've done, we will say to ourselves. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have acted that way. I shouldn't have reacted that way. I'm sorry for how, and we, it's coming from this deep emotional experience that we're having of the discomfort of being in this space mentally and even emotionally. One commentator even kind of went along with that to some degree. He said, you know, to repent is to admit that we are not as we should be, that the fault is ours and the expression of sorrow as a result. That in itself is monumental because we live in such a narcissistically infected culture because narcissism is something that can expand and grow. When I first started studying the idea of narcissistic and sociopathic personalities, just because I was fascinated by how wacky they were and was wondering if I was one of them, I found out they said, the psychiatrist said, well, 4% of the population are narcissists. As I was most recently listening to a more updated presentation on the dynamics and how this field of psychology has just grown they said, well, at least 10% of the population have a narcissistic personality disorder. And in some industries, it says as high as 50%. And someone said, well, what kind of industry are you talking about? Movies, entertainment. <laughs> because you see, the one thing that marks a narcissistic personality is the absolute inability to ever admit that they're wrong. It's always somebody else's fault. Now, I know, we're all infected with that to some degree, right? That's part of sin, but we're talking about when it begins to metastasize within a person and eventually begins to metastasize in the culture. Because I remember what that psychiatrist said in her book that I was reading you know, so many years ago. She said, the problem is we live in a culture that rewards that behavior, Corporations, government, military, they want those people who will do anything to get ahead. If it furthers them, if it enriches them, it empowers them, they will do it. They will say it. And all you have to do is to watch cable news to be confirmed in that. When you see people who are lying, obviously lying without even stuttering, 
lying in the face of obvious contradictions, and yet they never blink. Ten. But you know, originally the word meant something a little bit different and significantly more deep. As one commentator put, he said, the word originally meant an afterthought. Often a second thought shows that the first thought was wrong. And so the word came to mean a change of mind. But repentance must involve both a change of mind and a change of action. And then he explains, he says, a man may change his mind and come to see that his actions are wrong, but be so much in love with his old ways that he will not change them. I can't even begin to count the number of people who have been addicted to one substance or another who said, I know it's wrong, I know it's killing me, I know I should stop, but I don't want to. And that you realize very quickly when you're dealing with people who have substance addictions that until they want to, just telling them it's wrong is not enough. He goes on to explain, a, a man may change his ways, but his mind remains the same, changing only because of fear or prudence. There are a lot of people who don't do bad things because they are fearful of getting caught and convicted, and so they may want to do it, but they try to figure out, okay, how can I do this without getting caught? And in our day of age, with the pseudo-secrecy of the internet, people can be deceived into believing that they can do bad things and get away with it and not be caught. But he adds finally, he says, true repentance involves a change of mind and a change of action. I mean, we have such a perfect example in the story of the, the prodigal son who betrays his family and runs off with his portion of the fortune and quite a story into itself that we don't have time to go into such detail. But it's amazing. He comes to this sudden moment of realization after he has wasted everything and he's knee deep in pig dung and he's eating the scraps that the pigs won't eat. And he has this sudden realization that he, uh, that he was an ungrateful and a foolish son. And he shows us both in the story a change of mind, which also led to a change of action. It says in Luke 15, when he came to his senses, when he came to his senses, one of my favorite phrases in, the, in Luke's gospel, coming to your senses. He said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now it's wonderful how the father reacts. It's as if his son had never done anything, that he does everything in his power to restore him to the place where he once was. But it came only at that point. You find the father never went looking for him, never went searching for him. He just waited for him to come to his senses. See, the hardest thing about repentance is that you have to accept personal responsibility for what you have done wrong. And only after that is there any chance that anybody will truly come to a repentance. 
This, I believe, would have been the great challenge for the Ephesians because they believed that they were at the top of their religious and spiritual game. Yet Jesus saw far beyond their words and their ideas. In fact, the writer of Hebrews informs us, he said, the word of God is living and it's active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, even revealing the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart that no one else can see. What Jesus saw was something reminiscent, we might say, of what took place in the first tabernacle in the days of Solomon, or Samuel, excuse me. Samuel is such an interesting biblical character because he is a priest, he is a prophet, he is a judge, and he was a Nazarite, which meant that in his lifetime he never cut his hair, he never drank or ate anything that was associated with the grapes a way of saying, basically, I am dedicating my life and fully and completely to God. But Samuel tells us, or he writes to us about his childhood, that the boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli, who was the high priest. And in those days, it said, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. And then it adds, uh, regarding Eli, the high priest, Eli's had begun to grow dim so dim that he could not see, and before the lamp of God went out. God had issues with Eli as the high priest. His sons were making themselves fat off the sacrifices. In other words, quite literally, for them it had become a cash cow, a way of making a great living. One of the tragic ironies is that when Eli falls over backward and breaks his neck, on the news of the capture of the Ark of the Covenant by the Philistines, it said he fell over and broke his neck because he was so fat. In a world where obesity was rare and only the richest and most powerful could afford to consume enough money to have a weight problem, he, which was supposed to be the spiritual leader of the nation, had become consumed by the sins of his sons. But secondly, they were committing sexual immorality. You know, you've heard me say it many before. Once you touch the gold and once you touch the glory, it's only a matter of time before you touch something else you're not supposed to touch. You start by touching the glory of God. When they decided that God's law was not necessarily applicable to them, that they were above and beyond it, that they could prosper and move forward with their life doing things that God said, thou shalt not, without regard, then God confronts Eli and he says, why do you honor your sons above me? I will honor those who honor me and I will despise those who despise me. So that not only was Eli getting fat off the sacrifices, not only was he turning a blind eye to the sexual immorality that his sons were engaged in, that even he knew about it, he did nothing. He said nothing. He didn't confront it. And as a consequence, God began to withdraw his prophetic presence from the entire nation. Because see, God ordains that that prophetic presence be manifested through certain channels that he has ordained. In the pace of the Ephesians, it was through the church that God sought to bring a light unto the Gentiles. 
And this idea that the house of God would become later on, he calls it Ichabod. It means the glory has departed. He allowed the Philistines to not only conquer them and kill his sons and lead to his death, but to burn the, the tabernacle itself to the ground. And God simply said, it's because it's become Ichabod. The glory has been removed. We see it when God looks at the house of God in the days of Jesus, and he says, first, you've turned it into a house of merchandise. And then he said, you've made it into a den of thieves. In the days of Judah, it had become a place of idolatry and a place of sexual perversion. In a way, figuratively, Jesus was telling the Ephesians, you think you're like a bright light of, in a dark world, but your candle is flickering. Like in Matthew 25 when he said the five of the virgins had no oil in their lamp. He's saying the oil in your lamps is running out. And if you do not recognize this and repent, I will remove even the little light that remains Essentially, they were guilty of building without the Holy Spirit. You might say the candle was there, but there was no flame anymore. There was just smoke. You see, this is the fear I have for the American church and many around the world. That we, with our obsessive concern about being relevant, where compliance and complacency and cooperation with the culture is described as being a good witness for Christ. When being liked by sinners is more important than telling them the truth. Where being loved by the culture is more important than being or loving God and loving the things that God loves, which by the way, once again, includes hating the things that God hates. When we become to a place in the church where we don't even seem to know the difference We're in trouble. That as I've been talking throughout this whole part of this series of messages, that the judgment of God begins with the church of God. That his Holy Spirit here is now is searching and looking at you and at me and my heart and wondering, do we embrace what God says or do we say, well, I don't know about that. Ironically, this is the one that Jesus did commend the Ephesians 4. He said, you, you hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, and he says, which I also hate, which raises the question, who exactly were the Nicolaitans? Truthfully, we don't really know a great deal about them, but there are some indications that are fairly significant and fairly troubling. That one theory holds that the word Nicolaos which means power and people. That they basically, there was a teaching, a religious view that there were two classes of Christians. There was the clergy who were close to God and then there was the laity who, if they want to know God, must obediently follow the leaders who mediate between them and God. 
This is a model that's usually found in what we call the high liturgical churches where like the Roman Catholic Church or the Orthodox uh, Eastern churches, they're notable for their elaborate and, and uh, uh, rituals, their opulent robes, their incense, their pageantry, their long traditions, their rig- rigorous requirements. They're highly authoritarian, very centralized in their power, and they bestow upon themselves non-biblical, even often non-Christian titles like Pontifus Maximus, which is the title for the Roman emperor under the pagans. <laughs> he was the high priest of Jupiter. They call him his eminence. The vicar of Christ means in place of Christ. I am here on earth in place of Christ. They don some people as cardinals and give them little red caps. They refer to them as the princes of the church, which every one of them and more have direct connection to paganism, not biblical Christianity, that in my opinion, they really represent a tragic compromise of Christianity with the pagan religious systems that surrounded them as they developed. For the Ephesians, it was almost like saying Artemis won Because even though they were outwardly Christian, many of them had become paganized within their Christianity. But they didn't see it as paganized, they saw it as being civilized Christians. What it does is it turns Christianity upside down into something that's a complete opposite of the kingdom that Christ describes. For example, in Luke 22, Jesus said, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. The Latin word is pater or father. Father this, father that. And then Jesus added, but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be the one who serves. You see, most concerning is that this system diminishes the priesthood of the believer, the role that you have as a follower of Christ, the concept that your prayers reach the throne of God as quickly and as effectively as mine do, that I don't have an inside aisle, I don't have a special pass that allows me to get into the throne room, and then it's when, if, if I'm ready, I'll say, okay, you can let the others in. But in the eyes of God, it's... Every one of us has immediate access. Every one of us can come boldly before the throne of grace and ask for help. And that there is only one who mediates between God and man, as Paul said in 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind and the man Jesus Christ. God, through his son Jesus Christ, is the sole mediator between you and God. Any man who puts himself between you and God is a false prophet, is a deceiver. It's a false religious system. Now, a second view is that the name was not taken from the name Nicolaos, but it was Nicola, which was a Greek word for saying, let us eat. So, you know, I mean, when you get together on 4th of July and the food is spread out there, you can just say, Nicola! Nicola! 
But it had direct reference to the idea that you would go to a pagan festival and that you would eat the ritual sacrifices that were offered to idols. And oftentimes those parties, those celebrations, those feasts were riddled with drunkenness and sexual immorality. The word I think is debauchery. You're being debauched. So it's interesting, the church in Ephesus rejected this teaching as we will see, but later on we'll find in the same chapter that the church of Pergamos had embraced this very teaching. And Jesus warned them that his patience is not limitless. As he said to the Pergamon Christians, he said, repent therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, a third view, which is, you know, really similar to the following, previous view, but it it's, was taught, and this comes from church tradition around the second century, so it's got a little bit more credibility, if you will. But there was one of the seven de deacons who was named Nicholas. And what the church fathers said, that uh, this one of these men who was one of the first deacons that his name, which means one who conquers the people, it suggests that Nicholas became an apostate, denied the true faith, and formed a group that held to the doctrine of Balaam. What exactly is the doctrine of Balaam? Well, we're given tantalizing hints in the New Testament. Here in Revelations 14, chapter 2, verse 14, excuse me, it says, Balaam who taught Israel to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. You see, the pagan world was always a combination of sensual saturation. Whatever sensual pleasure, whatever sensual desire you had, God wants you to immerse yourself in it. And so when they had a pagan sacrifice, a pagan festival, people would come together, they would overdrink, they would overeat, and then they would engage in, in boundaryless sexual enterprise. There were no limits. That's why he goes on in that same passage and says, likewise, in other words, equally, exactly in the same way, you have all those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. In 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter says, they have left the straight way. I don't know how literally I should take that. They're no longer straight. <laughs> They've wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, who loved the wages, literally the rewards, the benefits, the pleasures of wickedness. It's interesting. Wickedness is always a fascinating word because if I were to come to a person and say, you know, I, I think you're a very wicked person. They would not only be offended, but they would probably argue against it. I am not wicked. And I said, that's because you don't know the definition of the word. <laughs> to operate outside of the will of God is wickedness. He loved the benefits of living his life outside of the restraints of God. And then Peter went on and he says, they promised them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. Slaves to what has mastered them. 
Depravity is an interesting word as well. It means moral corruption, but also a moral corruption that leads to a decay that eventually leads to suffering, misery, and ultimately eternal separation from God. And one of the things that is denied by many people today as they pursue their sensual appetites is they don't recognize it is a self-destructive behavior. Now, it should become more obvious when we're telling children to take certain medications, or call medications the wrong word, just harmful drugs, and to subject themselves to certain kind of maimed scissions with the vain, crazy idea that somehow they can change their biology, that what we know is their lifespans become increasingly shorter and that they have a 19 times higher rate of committing suicide afterwards. And yet somehow we as a culture, and even in elements of the church, we sit back and go, well, you know, they're just trying to find their true identity. I found my true identity before I gave my life to Jesus. I am a sinner. That's my true identity until I asked Christ into my heart and he gave me a new identity which is born of the Spirit. But I pray to God that none of us are confused because that's the real goal is to confuse people. To confuse you to a point where you go silent. It was a second century theologian Clement of Alexandria who described the Nicolaitans This way, he said, they abandoned themselves to pleasure, leading a life of self-indulgence. They abandoned themselves to pleasure, leading themselves to a life of self-indulgence. Sadly and tragically, we're seeing such similar examples, not only outside of the churches, but even within It just struck me today when I was thinking about how that wickedness has always been in the world, but today it's online and reaches the youngest of minds. Today we find entire denominations, rather than confronting or uh, the sin of our culture, they're affirming it, they're embracing it. And Jeremiah said, of his own day, he said, they dressed the wound of my people as though it was not serious. And I even hear it from well-meaning Christians. Well, you know, that's their thing. Let them do it. I don't care. I mean, it's like, let them do what they want to do. Just leave me alone. And that seems to be the psychological posture of much of our culture and even within many of the churches. Who are we to judge? You're right. You have no right to judge. But the word of God does state very clearly the judgment of God. He says they're saying to the people, peace, peace, when there is no peace and there is no healing. I'm struck that many of my colleagues remain awkwardly silent, maybe because of fear of retribution or cancellation, whether they're afraid that the media is going to say mean things about them, that mean people are going to do mean things to them, that 
government is going to legislate against them, that even their own membership will rise up in rebellion. But I tell you, if that is their decision, it's one they will come to regret. You see, in response to these perverts, this kind of response, I would say, only emboldens them in their immorality and the demonic forces that have taken them captive. It's amazing how Jude describes it in his little letter. He says, they are like wild waves of the sea churning up the foam of their shameful deeds. As I was thinking about this, I went online and I was Googling a bunch of uh, pictures of gay pride LGBTQ events and I was going to post them up here so you could see how they're churning up their shame for the whole world to see. And I decided that you would probably send me emails and say, that's too much. So I thought better of it. I've got enough of those emails already. I don't need any more. But you understand that there's a demand that you endorse what they're doing because their own conscience is telling them it's wrong. So they're saying, you need to be silent. You need to stop saying this is wrong because you're making me feel bad. That's why the state of Michigan or the house in Michigan just passed a bill saying that if you misgender somebody intentionally, in other words, if you call them by the obvious gender that they actually are biologically, you can get five years in prison and $10,000 fine. It has to pass the Senate, which I think will probably happen. And then, of course, we've got Gretchen Whitmer, who will certainly veto it. <laughs> Most of you don't know Gretchen. Oh. You remember the story of Hansel and Gretel? There was a lady who had a... Basically, one commentator said they're impelled by their restless passions. They unblushingly exhibit in word and deed their base and abandoned spirit. Jude finally said they are like wandering stars doomed forever to the blackest darkness. It's amazing you find how that language is used and distorted to say the opposite of what it really means. I mean, we've seen this for decades when we had talked about military intelligence, you know, or... But when we're told that to be sexually disoriented is something that you should be proud about, And the whole nation is subjected to a month-long battling of saying, pride, pride, pride. Even though that pride is considered scripturally as being a a vice, not a virtue, it was the first sin (laughs) that not only brought down Lucifer, it brought down Adam and Eve. It's a pride, I will become like God. Despite all of that, when I say that I can change my sexual orientation or even my sexual identity, is that ultimately the expression of pride? I'm claiming God's power exists in me. It is the ultimate statement of Satan and hell to disavow the God of heaven and say he is not our creator, we create ourselves. Which kids have been learning in school through evolution for generations. We created ourselves. 
I was this protoplasmic ooze, and one day I said, I think I can. I commiserate with Jeremiah's repeated complaint about the political and religious aristocracy of his day when he said in the 14th chapter, he said, my eyes overflow with tears night and day without ceasing for the virgin daughter has suffered a grievous wound, a crushing blow. Is there no healing for the wound of my people? My answer is yes, there is. It's found in Jesus. Not the Jesus of certain mega series which present a Jesus that everybody can like, but the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus who said, you must be born again. I do not come to condemn the world. The world is already condemned. But he said, if you believe on me, you receive eternal life. You see, we don't go to hell because we are sinners. We are sinners because we're already destined for hell. But the way I get saved, the way anybody gets saved is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is not any kind of casual or nominal acknowledgement. Yeah, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus but to believe means that you reorder your life. That it's what repentance does. That you've come to this sudden realization, which is more than realization. It's a revelation of God. My eyes are open. I suddenly hear and see things that I never understood before. And because of that, I cannot live as I once lived. I have to change. And so the paths of your lives become very different. You may go to the same job on Monday morning, but you're not the same plumber you were before. Don't worry, you don't look like Christy Nome. But the whole point is that uh, I think a lot of these jokes go way over your guys' head. I just... <laughs> okay, I want to explain. You know, they say if you have to explain a joke, it's, it's already too late. Anyway. But this is the word to his church. Remember recognize, repent, repeat. Because if you don't, he says, I will take my presence away from you. It's interesting reading the Christian Post article that said there are 6,000 United Methodist churches that have withdrawn from the denomination because of their position on LGBTQ. They just said, we're done. See, in the South, the United Methodists tend to be pretty conservative in their theology, pretty biblical. And they said, we can't be part of this anymore. The Presbyterians have seen similar losses and other mainline denominations, the Evangelical Lutheran Church, and on and on you go, who have come out and said, well, basically we embrace all these things. And it's interesting because as they have done this, they found even the remaining churches are beginning to see their members dwindling away. Because in a sense, you're saying there is no right and there is no wrong, there is no good, there is no evil. And when you do that, why even bother going to church? I could be on the beach right now investing myself in something very pleasurable. But instead, 
I'm going to come and be bored by some long-winded pontificator like this guy? I mean, I can watch cable news and listen to windbags all day long. I don't need to waste a good Sunday morning listening to him. You know. 